Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What could cause God to strike a person dead? Find out in today's study of Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. We're reading today in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not in your own control? And after it was sold, was it not your own? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias Hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband, and great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. After the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost, Luke gives various glimpses into the life of the believers here and there by describing incidents in the ministry of the apostles, especially Peter and those who are with him. After the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple, the first threats of persecution were made against the followers of Jesus, but they responded with all the resilience of full faith, and they asked God not for deliverance, but for boldness to continue the work for his glory. That spirit, that genuine, authentic trust in Jesus, 
bound the people together in precisely the way God purposed so that they constituted in that moment the ideal expression of Christianity in the world. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, Now the multitude of those who believed, or as the New American Standard Version puts it, the whole congregation of believers were of one heart and one soul. This is a beautiful expression of the absolute unity of the primitive church. These are the ever-growing number. Now, perhaps, there are more than 15,000 from all across the world, from all walks of life. It is true they were all Jews, but certainly that did not ensure any love or fraternity between them. Even the Jews within Jerusalem itself were given over completely to sectarian bigotry against one another, and they were constantly feuding and undermining one another, unable to cooperate for more than a moment, even in the pursuit of their most common goals, before they fell into another quarrel. Beyond that, these were Jews from across the world, separated by the diaspora, and each bringing his own culture and traditions to the newly formed community of the Messiah. But by the testimony and teaching of the apostles, this diverse crowd was brought together to such a perfect degree that Luke testifies their very thoughts and desires were in union. To use the language of the apostle Paul on a later occasion, they spoke the same thing, and they were perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. There were no divisions among them. In this group of people, the prayer of Jesus was answered when he asked God in John chapter 17 and verse 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The unity of believers seems to be an outdated idea, something that could only belong to a more naive and adolescent age. But I want to encourage us to see in this account an example of what God expects and what God can and will make possible in the lives of those who trust him and submit to him. But of course, that kind of unity extends beyond merely being united in beliefs and practices. It means being united in deed and in truth, as 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says. So when the Bible gives an example of this unity in action, it highlights that supernatural selflessness that was already mentioned as one of the believer's crowning characteristics from the beginning, the ultimate expression of a Christ-like spirit. Verse 32 through 33 continue, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The real power behind apostolic preaching was not simply the confirmation of a leaping lame man and other miracles of that nature. It was the testimony of the transformed lives of those who had obeyed the gospel, and the most striking aspect of their transformation was their love for one another. Jesus had said in John chapter 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another as I have loved you. And in John 17, 21, he predicted that if his people would be one— 
then the world would believe that God had sent him. That's precisely what we see. The love of the believers gave great power to the witness of the apostles, and great grace was upon them all. This might mean that God was pleased with them, and it might mean that they found tremendous favor with the people around them, and certainly both were true in this case. Unity among believers is a part of the mission of Christ's kingdom in this world. It's another leg on the stool alongside the conversion of the lost and the increase of the knowledge of God, and without it, the mission of God is incomplete. Because of the extreme division we see in the world around us, the thousands of different Christian groups who seem to do nothing but fight and feud and split again, we might be tempted to think that the union of believers is impossible, and therefore to lay it aside as a part of our purpose. Of course, we could say the same thing about anything else that God has made part of the mission of the church. Think of all the ignorance and confusion about God in this world. Do we ever think we'll really eradicate it? Then why should we bother studying or teaching the Bible at all? Think of all the lost people in the world. Do we really think we could ever reach them all? Then why bother preaching the gospel? But that kind of thinking comes from the devil. God calls on us to do all we can whenever and wherever we are. We may never put an end to all of the religious division, even in our own community, but we can work to put an end to it in our congregation. And when we succeed there, the kingdom of Christ becomes that much more complete, and the testimony of the gospel in our area becomes that much stronger, and it might amaze us what can follow after. Acts chapter 4, verse 34, explains further how this common possession among the believers worked. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. The language here gives the first glimpse of a formal collection as an expression of worship. The people of Jesus had developed the practice of both giving and collecting. It was not simply individual charity, but the members brought their contributions to the apostles' feet. That's seemingly a metaphor to say they presented the gifts and offerings formally to the apostles, and they, that is the apostles, distributed to each as anyone had need. That's meaningful because when we read about the collection for the saints in later passages, the comments are very much tied to the specific incident of the famine in Judea. And some Bible readers suppose that the collection was something novel that only took place on that extraordinary occasion. But here we see that a collection and the formation of a consecrated treasury overseen by the leaders of the congregation was a part of the apostolic order long before the famine in Judea and simply the normal way that the ancient Christians functioned when it came to benevolent needs. Also noteworthy, it was other Christians who were being cared for from this fund. The special contribution and administration of the church is always for the saints in the Bible. Verse 36, And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, 
a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This man, who becomes a very significant personality in the record of Acts, and evidently in the early church all throughout the world, was nicknamed by the apostles' son of encouragement. McGarvey says that the word encouragement is not in reference to the gift that Luke records here, but actually it refers to his talent as a speaker and teacher that led him to be sent out on evangelistic missions by the churches. He also says that the expression having land, or literally owning a tract of land, seems to indicate that this was his whole inheritance. And considering the course his life takes after this event, the conclusion is that he sold essentially everything he had for the sake of the poor saints, and he dedicated himself as a servant of the church from that day forward. Moving in now to chapter 5 and verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's some things about this incident that are not clearly spelled out, but they can be inferred from the language as the account moves along. First, it seems that these offerings were made in the assembly, because there are other people around, and later the Bible will mention this man's wife coming in. So we're getting a vague picture here, but one worth carefully noting. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul commanded the Christians in Corinth to give, and the congregation to store up a collection for the saints. And he said they were to tend to this on the first day of every week. Of course, that was the day when the ancient disciples came together to eat the Lord's Supper, according to Acts 20 and verse 7. And thus it was only reasonable for that to be the assembly when they gave and collected as well, because all of the believers would be present. That weekly collection may not have been the order at the beginning, but we see how things were forming in the life of the church that would reasonably lead to it later. Secondly, it's evident that these contributions were free will offerings. There's no tithing or mandatory percentage in these scriptures. In fact, from what Peter says, it doesn't seem that the disciples were required to give anything at all. This was an expression of charity and generosity. Third, when the passage says that Ananias and Sapphira kept some back, the verb that Luke uses carries the idea of doing something surreptitiously or clandestinely. It is the same word translated pilfering or thieving in Titus 2 and verse 10. So again, the problem was not that they did not give all the proceeds to the church, that was not required of them, but that in giving a certain part, they gave the impression that they were giving the whole. This is certainly demonstrated later in Peter's conversation with Sapphira, who Luke says here was fully aware of the plan. Likely, they wanted the praise and adoration given to Barnabas because of his amazing generosity, but without the personal sacrifice. Verses 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? 
and after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived of this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. We want to notice a few things here. Number one, just as Peter earlier spoke of the will of men and the will of God in harmonious terms, maintaining free will and personal responsibility even when spiritual beings are involved, here he makes the same point regarding men and Satan. He first says, Satan filled your heart, but then he says, you conceived this thing in your heart. So while Satan was the tempter at work in the life of this Christian man, yet the final decision to sin which led to his ruin was his own decision. All of Peter's question highlights the fact that Ananias did not have to do this, and it was against good sense and reason to do so. He sinned because he deliberately gave in to the temptations of the devil through the pride of life. Second, Peter says that this hypocritical offering was a lie against the Holy Spirit, and later he says a lie against God. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. Now, we'll finish the reading and then come to discuss the incident in more detail. Verses 5 through 11 say, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in. That is, she came into the place where the church had been meeting. By this time, it seems the assembly was over. Probably it was disrupted by the death of Ananias. But Luke says, she came in not knowing what had happened. McGarvey suggests that we have to suppose Peter had commanded the other disciples not to say anything so that word would not get to her. Evidently, the Holy Spirit informed him that she was in collusion with Ananias, just as guilty as him, Therefore, she was also to be punished. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are here at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is a disturbing incident for many Bible readers. It seems like something we would read in the Old Testament rather than the New. People feel that way, especially when so many preachers and theologians tell us that the Old was a dispensation of law when God was harsh and cruel and judgmental, but the new is a dispensation of grace, when God is loving and kind and patient, and this kind of reaction just doesn't belong to the reign of Christ. The truth is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. God has always been loving and kind and patient, but also God is holy and when his holiness is challenged or ignored, even by his own people, there will be grave and devastating consequences. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 20, through chapter 10 and verse 7, we read about an incident from the early history of Israel, which is strikingly similar to what took place here in the book of Acts. 
not only in the details of the events, but even in the language used to describe them. In Leviticus 9, 20-24, the Bible says that Israel gathered to witness the worship of God, and the priests tended to all the sacrifices and gave all the things on the altar, just as Moses commanded. Verse 22 says, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burn offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted, and fell on their faces. The will of God was obeyed. God was glorified. The worship of the people was accepted, and there was great rejoicing. Then things changed drastically in the very next verses. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3 says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Look at the contrast. This time the will of God was disobeyed. The priests offered something unauthorized or profane to God, which he had not commanded them. And God was dishonored, and the worship was rejected. And consider the intensity of its rejection. Before fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the offering, now it consumed the worshipers, and they died. And the Bible says their brothers came and wrapped them in their tunics and carried them out of the camp to bury them. That's familiar language. Great fear came upon all the people. Moses explained the issue. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Now, many things changed in the transition from the old system to the new. There was a new temple, not a tent or a building, but the assembly of the saints. There was a new priesthood, not the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, but all believers, men and women, husbands and wives. There was a new kind of sacrifice, not bulls and goats burned on an altar, but the sacrifice of the heart, the manifestations of Christ-like generosity for those who had need. But some things had not changed. The God of heaven is still holy and must be so regarded by those who come near him. The hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira and the implication that they could deceive the inspired apostles of Jesus was no less offensive to God than the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu. It was lying to God and testing the Spirit of the Lord, and the punishment for the profane priests of the new covenant was the same as for those in the old. Their life could not continue. It is true that not every hypocrite and profane worshiper suffers this fate in the immediate. 
But these were visible manifestations at the early seasons of God's people in the former and present dispensation that God's wrath is against those who profane his holiness. He is the same God, and sooner or later he will judge every deed, whether good or bad. Luke concludes, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Is this a sour note, ruining the beauty of the previous scenes of love and charity? No. The work of God had its intended results. It is not God's desire for us to dread Him, but it is His demand, and reasonably so, that we respect Him. By those who come near Him, He must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, He must be glorified. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey.